Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Vav and is the third teaching in our Psalms mixtape series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on April 30th, 2023. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Two weeks ago, we began a series on the Psalms, uh, part of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And inspired by the ancient technology of the mixtape, we're thinking about this ancient collection of poems and prayers and songs as Israel's mixtape, a collection of art that spans the spectrum of human emotion and experience when dealing with God in our lives. So the first week, uh, we looked at Psalm 1 and how it kind of lays out this uh, basic principle of the world, like how the world is supposed to work. Normally, this belief that God protects the righteous, the people who walk the, the straight and narrow, and delivers justice to those who do wicked things. And ideally, that's the way the world ought to work. Um, but the Psalms are really, truly a mixtape of a lot of different kinds of experiences, uh, different genres, different attitudes about what happens in the world. And last week, Molly taught about the Psalms that ask God to deliver justice against oppressive powers. The assumption being in that, that despite the neat categories of Psalm 1, there are times when Israel did not perceive God's justice playing out before their eyes in the world. They believed that God was on the side of the oppressed, but they needed to respond to that belief by telling God how bad things were on earth and begging God to step in. So, yes, God is a God of justice, but we're also called to be people of justice who notice when things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Which really means that the theology of the Psalms embrace a posture or an attitude of positive construction, but also at times necessary deconstruction. Walter Brueggemann, a biblical scholar and theologian, says that there are essentially three kinds of of Psalms in the book, uh, Spirituality of the Psalms. He says there are Psalms of orientation, Psalms that kind of give us a theme or an identity of who we're supposed to be, the way the world is supposed to work, Psalms of praise. There are Psalms of disorientation, Psalms where the way that we think things should be are apparently not so, and we have to give voice to that in some sense to make sense of the disorder and the chaos of the world and of our lives. And then he says there are psalms of new orientation, where despite what we might seem to be uh, in our disillusionment, we also make an effort to try to reorient ourselves in a new way. Uh, We try to go back and rebuild, to sing songs of thanksgiving, acknowledging the hard things, but also trying to build something new. Psalm 1, the first psalm that we looked at, is definitely a psalm of orientation. It tells us how the world should be and how it should normally work. But for the next few weeks, we're going to look at some psalms of disorientation, psalms that give us a language to speak when the world does not make sense and God seems distant. So I have a long relationship with the psalms personally. I've always felt that the psalms spoke to me. They were one of my favorite books to read, especially during high school when I was feeling big feelings and needed a catharsis. Um, So there was this one time when I was reading the Psalms, and I came to Psalm 37, verse 4, 
which reads, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So I had a crush on this girl, and I was like, I am delighting myself in the Lord, so maybe I should ask her to be my girlfriend. And it worked. Her name was not Christy, who was my wife. So that ultimately didn't work out, okay? It didn't work out. But I, I really believe that the Psalms spoke to me in that way. Like if I read them, they were like a decoding mechanism for the world around me that I could actually act out in the world. They didn't just give me a language, they gave me permission to do things, right? Particularly the darker Psalms that express doubt or loneliness. And one of the reasons that I really liked those kinds of Psalms was because I was kind of an emo kid um, in high school, and if you don't know what emo is, then I'm, you just didn't grow up in the late 90s, early 2000s, I guess. Uh, I don't want to assume that everyone knows what this culture is. Uh, it stands for like emotional rock, and I mean, it's just a whole thing. Um, I kind of probably was a poser a little bit, like I didn't have the haircut, I didn't paint my nails black or wear eyeliner, um, but I did wear the t-shirts to all the bands that I liked, and I listened to the music. Um, and music in emo says stuff like this, okay? All I need to know is that I'm something you'll be missing. I mean, that is so good. <laughs> and then another one of my personal favorites for the breakups, Your Hair is Everywhere, Screaming Infidelities by Dashboard Confessional. So, inspired by Molly's game last week, if you weren't here, we played a little game. We played Phoebe Bridgers or the Psalms. And so I want to play Emo or the Psalms. <laughs> Translations of the biblical passages are from Eugene Peterson's The Message, just to throw you off the scent a little bit. So here we go. We'll take a, we'll take a vote by show of hands. You tell me, Emo or Psalms. I'm a bucket kicked over and spilled. Every joint in my body has been pulled apart. My heart is a blob of melted wax in my gut. Psalms, raise your hand. Everybody feels like, okay. Anybody for emo? Anybody want to? Oh, okay. It's all good. That was your freebie. Our days were numbered by nights. On too many rooftops, they say we're wasting our lives. Psalms, raise your hand. No? Okay, two people. E emo? Okay. Good job. It's burn this city by cartel. Gives you an idea of you know, what we're talking about here. All right, here's another one. Naked and under the cover of night, it's just a matter of time until I'm counted and measured and filed and then long forgotten. Psalms, raise your hand. Okay, a little bit more for that. Okay, emo. Okay, seems like that's the consensus. It is emo. These Bones by Dashboard Confessional. Why, why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? Psalms, emo. Everybody thinks it's emo? It's a psalm! 
I got you. One more, one more. Sometimes the only payoff of having any faith is when it's tested again and again every day. Psalm. One, two, three, four, five, couple, couple. Emo? A little bit more. Okay, we're going to go with the group there. It is emo. Fallout boy. So if you take away nothing else from this morning, the Bible is emo. That's, that's my point. One of the reasons I think that I gravitated towards this kind of music as a teenager and these mildly depressing poems in the Bible was because I generally felt how excluded these feelings and sentiments were in faith for many of the other Christians around me. Uh, faith had a thesis statement in three points. Uh, it was about orientation, which by itself is not a bad thing. But disorientation, at least in the culture that I grew up in, was scary. It was not to be trusted. And since we started this series, I've had several people stop me with comments or questions. And uh, Renee Dudley from our North community asked a question that I found really interesting after the first week. She said, do you think that if we had been raised with a faith that knew how to lament and observe the broken parts of our lives in the world better, we would currently have the need to deconstruct faith today? Would we be so bothered by the faith that we used to have? And I thought it was a really great question. I think she's right to ask that. I think if the church was a little more emo-friendly, uh, we'd be a little healthier and robust when it comes to our expressions of faith and the kind of things that we can give voice to. So today we're going to lean into that. And the first psalm that we're going to look at is Psalm 13, which begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have prevailed and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken so the psalmist here has just gone full emo from the very beginning. The questions are, how much longer? Why are you hiding? Why are you allowing this pain? And I can't help but feel like many of the prayers advertised in Christianity, the ones that we say the most, would feel iffy about expressing something like this, demanding that God pay attention to our suffering and our anguish. There's almost an accusation in the questions. Don't you realize, God, that I'm this close to death? Look over here. There's no hedging or flowery praise to start like, oh, I know you're the king of the universe and you've got it all under control, but here I am. It jumps right in to the critique and the questions. And then the psalmist does this next. He says, but I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
Okay, there's a lot going on just in the very end of this psalm. But first, let's acknowledge what a sharp turn that is to go from the first four verses to this conclusion. There are four grueling verses describing God's absence, and it flips immediately to a final proclamation of trust. Insert joke here about this being a big but. Okay? Get it? It's okay. But what does it mean to read the first four verses of this text, these questions, these doubts, and then come to this jarring negation here, but then I trusted in the Lord. The Hebrew uh, word for but is really just a single letter. Um, it's a single letter of the alphabet, the letter Vav. And in Hebrew, this letter is usually used to show a shift in the syntax. It, it moves to something else. It, it can be translated as but, but more commonly, it's translated as and. It's a connecting word. And I don't normally go in for an analysis of a single letter or a word uh, to make a difference in theology or our interpretation of something. It's generally a bad practice. Um, but in this case, there is a psychological component behind the difference in translating this verse that we just read as and or but. Uh, business psychologists and therapists agree that using the word but tends to create a negation of everything that comes before it. It puts people on the defensive. Using the word and instead communicates the same kind of ideas, but it creates a connection and it creates more positive communication. So, for example, saying, I had a great time on our date, but let's just be friends is different from saying, I had a great time on our date and I'd like to remain friends. Not that I've ever heard that one before. <laughs> or maybe, for those of you with kids, I know you really want that toy, but we're just going to wait until your birthday, is different from saying, I know you want that toy and we'll revisit this around your birthday. Still waiting for that one to work. We have every right, it would be grammatically correct, to translate this vav in Psalm 13 as the translators in most of our Bibles do with this word but. It would be grammatically correct. But I don't like the idea of when we do that, just negating the first four verses to some extent. The distance that this person is feeling from God in their lives and saying, it's okay, because but God has been faithful. We already have this tendency to disregard negative emotions or doubts. What would happen, I wonder, if we read this poem not as a negation of those feelings of doubt and those feelings of loneliness and distance, but if we read them as a part of faith, if we read it as an and. So let's read it this way. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have prevailed, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. And I have previously in the past trusted your steadfast love, so my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because He has in the past dealt bountifully with me. There's something about saying this is how I feel right now, and it's awful. And 
It hasn't always been this way. So I can say something that doesn't necessarily feel true right now. We don't have to either or our experiences. There is room in the Psalms for both and. What I didn't mention at the beginning of this psalm is that despite the fact that this appears to be the prayer of an individual, a single person, it's actually set as a liturgical work, something sung or said in the context of community. The first verse actually reads in some kind of uh, subheading, for the director of music, a psalm of David. Now, these things come later on into the biblical text, but for the purpose of the psalms as a book, This is something that's supposed to be a part of communal worship. The Hebrew word menetzeach is a reference to this person who presides over the worship in the temple. This is a liturgical leader. And so this individual cry of despair in Psalm 13 has become, eventually, by the time we get this book of Psalms, a worship song in the community. Something for everyone. The Psalms, like this one, teach us that our feelings matter individually and that we do not have to be controlled by our feelings as individuals. Eugene Peterson writes this in the context of how we balance this in a community. He says, How do we affirm both, how do we both affirm our feelings and detach ourselves from them? Through liturgy. We pray not because we feel like it, but when someone, the pastor, the priest, the choir master says, let us pray. We lose nothing of our emotions except their tyranny. We pray through each psalm and hit every note, sound every tone of feeling that we are capable of, and learn to be at home with all of them before God. And I think this is how we try to structure things whenever we come together as a community on Sundays. We want to be honest and authentic with where we are, with how we feel about God, with what we're thinking. We want to make space for everyone here to feel belonging. And we want to acknowledge uh, that when there are older ways of doing faith that don't seem to make sense for us anymore or don't feel right or could be just downright harmful, we want to acknowledge those things. We want to acknowledge when we don't feel like those things are true for us anymore. And we also want to avoid wallowing in that reality because everything hasn't always been bad and in all likelihood won't always be bad in the future. We want to name our feelings and emotions and our faith statuses and not be controlled by them. We want to bluntly state the reality of things and not fall into denial or smooth out the rough edges. There's another psalm in the Hebrew Scriptures that I want to share with us this morning that does this as well. It actually does it more than Psalm 13. It's Psalm 22. And it's a longer psalm, so we're not going to read all of it. But it's a pretty famous one in the history of Scripture. Some of you may know why. Some of you may figure out why here in just a minute. But it's another one of those individual poems, an expression of grief, of loneliness, of distance, that becomes a part of the communal worship setting. And it begins this way. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. So this psalm is very similar to the way that Psalm 13 begins. But this is the psalm that Matthew describes Jesus quoting while on the cross in Matthew 27. This is something of a radical psalm journey, if you think about it. It begins in the book of Psalms as an ancient Israelite individual expressing the feeling that God has forsaken them. It starts off as this individual lament. And then, over the course of Israelite history, was incorporated into the book of Psalms as a community liturgy by being added into this collection. And then it comes back around full circle and is quoted by Jesus who then declares that on the cross God has forsaken him. Individual to community to individual on repeat. Even God feels devoid of God on the cross. The psalm begins by asking why God is absent and it keeps going. This is how the psalm continues. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And I'm a worm and not a human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They sneer at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let Him deliver. Let Him rescue the one in whom He delights. And it was you who took me from the womb and kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. The psalm contains several of these vav transitions, which I have chosen to translate as and, despite the fact that most of the time they're translated quite literally as but. But think of praying a prayer or singing a song or composing something as a response to God, a response to the way that you see the world around me, the way that you feel about things, saying this, God has forsaken me and God is holy, transcendent and other. And God has done great things in the past. And I'm currently suffering. And God gave me this life. And God, by the way, please do something. What would it be like as a community, as individuals, to hold this many vobs together in a response to God? What would it be like to see things, these things, not as contradictions or negations, but as connectors that all go together despite their differences? Interestingly enough, Psalm 22 ends sort of ambiguously. The psalmist doesn't necessarily declare that God will most definitely rescue this person from trouble. Deliverance is prayed for and hoped for, 
but not guaranteed. And the psalmist concludes by saying, future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim His deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that He has done it. Despite the present circumstances of the poet, a time is foreseen when future generations might proclaim God's deliverance through this person. That despite a sense of forsakenness, God would eventually make it right. That in the future, the psalmist's present will be a completed past. The, the problem is, is that we just don't have the insight. We don't have the perspective to know exactly the timeline of how that all plays out. But what's clear from the words of Psalm 13 and Psalm 22 and countless other psalms that we could have looked at is that it's important to be able to express these vocalized doubts and our hope for something 